Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from NHK World Radio Japan, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, and Russia's Sputnik Radio. We will begin with NHK World Radio Japan. Members of ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, met this week and are very concerned about the continuing conflict between China and the U.S. allies in the South China Sea. They also discussed attempts to resolve the coup in Myanmar. The Chinese President Xi Jinping talked about his country's relationship with the United Nations and the U.S.'s growing pressure in Asia. The Taiwanese president confirmed the presence of U.S. troops working as military advisors. The U.S., Britain, and France joined the adoption of a draft resolution on nuclear disarmament presented annually at the United Nations by Japan. Iran wants to restart talks on the nuclear deal, but first wants Biden to release $10 billion of the Iranian assets seized by the United States. A senior Taliban official met with envoys from 14 nations for assistance in unfreezing their overseas assets and recognizing their government. A United Nations climate survey shows a record high in greenhouse gas concentration last year. NHK Japan. Southeast Asian leaders are sharing concerns of the rivalry between the U.S. and China in their region. The Chinese have been pushing for territory in the Indo-Pacific while the Americans are pushing back. Members of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations met online on Wednesday along with Japan, the United States and China. A major issue at the summit was the South China Sea where Beijing has been building artificial islands and militarizing them. In an apparent move to counter China, the U.S. has created a security framework known as AUKUS with Australia and United Kingdom. Malaysian Prime Minister Ismail Sabri Yaakob warned AUKUS could lead to an arms race and worsen tensions in the South China Sea. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida Fumio said China's activities in the East China Sea are infringing on Japan's sovereignty. He says China is also threatening the rule of law in the South China Sea. ASEAN leaders have spent much of their summit discussing the coup in Myanmar. They're urging the generals who led it to accept proposals that might bring about peace. The leaders brought up an agreement that reached in April called the Five Point Consensus. It asks the generals to stop the fighting. It recommends peace talks with pro-democracy forces and it suggests an envoy mediate those discussions. The other members of ASEAN excluded Myanmar's military leader from their talks. They invited a senior diplomat in his place, but he didn't show up. 
ASEAN leaders do not normally make decisions that could be seen as interfering in internal affairs. Myanmar's military rulers say they've violated that policy. But the leaders say they need to strike an appropriate balance with the rule of law, governance and democracy. In China, President Xi Jinping has stressed his country's decades-long cooperation with the United Nations. He also hinted strongly at Beijing's opposition to U.S. moves to forge alliances to encircle China. On Monday, she addressed a conference marking the 50th anniversary of what Beijing refers to as the restoration of the lawful seat of the People's Republic of China in the United Nations. The UN recognized the People's Republic of China on October 25, 1971. As a result, Taiwan's administration lost its place in the world body. In his speech, she said that for the past 50 years, the Chinese people have upheld the UN's authority and sanctity and practiced multilateralism. He noted that China has dispatched more than 50,000 personnel to UN peacekeeping operations and is the second largest financial contributor to the world body. She also said China will firmly oppose all forms of hegemony, power politics, unilateralism and protectionism. He added that international rules must be set by the 193 UN member states acting in unison and not by individual countries or blocs. Taiwan. The president has confirmed that American troops have been deployed there to train its military. She made the comments during a TV interview with U.S. media. The CNN interview with President Tsai Ing-wen was aired on Thursday. It comes as China ramps up military pressure over Taiwan. During the interview, she was asked if the U.S. support for Taiwan includes training for Taiwanese troops. Tsai replied, quote, we have a wide range of cooperation with the U.S. aiming at increasing our defense capability, unquote. She stopped short of giving the exact number of U.S. military personnel in Taiwan, but said it's not as many as people thought. The CNN report said Tsai is the first Taiwanese president in decades to acknowledge the presence of U.S. troops for training purposes. The last U.S. troops left Taiwan in 1979, when Washington cut formal diplomatic ties with Taipei in order to recognize Beijing. CNN asked Tsai if she has faith that the U.S. would defend Taiwan if China were to try to attack. She responded, I do have faith. Tsai's remarks drew a sharp reaction from a spokesperson at China's foreign ministry. He said China strongly opposes any U.S. interference in its domestic affairs and any formal exchanges or military cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan. The UN Disarmament Committee has adopted Japan's draft resolution calling for nuclear disarmament. It's the 28th consecutive time a similar draft has been approved. Japan submits one every year as the only country attacked with nuclear weapons. The draft resolution calls on countries to take steps to enhance transparency and build mutual confidence. It calls for the signing and ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. It proposes disarmament education and interaction with atomic bomb survivors. The draft resolution was approved on Wednesday by the first committee of the General Assembly. 152 states voted in favor, 4 opposed and 30 abstained. 
13 more states voted in favor this year than last year, included the United States and Britain, as well as France, which abstained last year. Some non-nuclear nations, such as Austria, abstained. That was because the resolution made no direct mention of the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which took effect in January. Iranian diplomats say they're ready to restart talks on reviving a nuclear deal. But they say first they want U.S. President Joe Biden to make a gesture of good faith. The least Mr. Biden can do to show his goodwill is to free up $10 billion worth of assets and resources that belong to Iran. Amir Abdullahian's deputy met in Brussels with European Union envoy Enrique Mora. Ali Bagheri said the Iranians agreed to start talks next month. Negotiators from Iran and the U.S. met through intermediaries several times starting in April. But they have not met since the elections in June that brought Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi to power. World powers reached the nuclear deal with Iranian leaders in 2015. Three years later, former President Donald Trump pulled the U.S. out of the agreement and reimposed sanctions, and the Iranians resumed their nuclear program. A senior Taliban official met with envoys from 14 nations, including Japan, Germany and the Netherlands, on Wednesday. Its acting foreign minister, Amir Khan Mutaki, sought their cooperation in unfreezing the Afghan government's overseas assets. A Taliban spokesperson says that during the talks in Qatar's capital, Mataki also asked the countries to recognize the Taliban government. Japan's ambassador to Afghanistan, Okada Takashi, asked Mutaki for his government's support in securing a swift and safe exit of Japanese nationals from the country. Okada also requested safe passage for personnel delivering humanitarian aid from Japan. The Japanese foreign ministry says Mutaki expressed his willingness to accept these requests. The meetings come as UN food agencies warn that more than half of the Afghan population could face acute hunger this winter. The Taliban appear to be stepping up their efforts to build relations with foreign countries to prevent Afghanistan's economy from deteriorating further. A United Nations climate survey shows global concentrations of greenhouse gases hit a record high last year. That was despite a drop in fossil fuel CO2 output due to restrictions because of the coronavirus pandemic. The World Meteorological Organization analyzed data on methane, nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide. It looked at the global average concentrations of these gases. Officials of the Japan Meteorological Agency were involved in analyzing the data. They stressed countermeasures need to be taken over the long term. In keeping with this, Japan's transport ministry says it'll join an international initiative calling on the global shipping industry to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. This follows a pledge three years ago by the International Maritime Organization it said it would aim to cut global shipping emissions by 50 percent by 2050 from the levels in 2008. NHK has learned Japanese officials plan to propose a net zero target at an IMO meeting next month. They'll do so jointly with other countries such as the United States. In April, the U.S. called for the net zero target to be reached no later than 2050. But the shipping sector doesn't yet have the technology to reach net zero by that date.
Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7.245 and 7.355 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. Next, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Activists are calling on world leaders to make stronger commitments to deal with the catastrophic impacts of greenhouse gas emissions at the United Nations COP26 summit in Glasgow. Putin has ordered an increase in gas supplies for Europe, which is experiencing shortages. The European Court of Justice is fining Poland 1 million euros a day by withholding COVID relief funds until it reverses controversial legal reforms. Polish lawmakers are voting on building a wall at the Belarus border. Despite international pressure, Israel has approved 3,000 new settler homes in occupied Palestine. There's a national strike in Ecuador against the conservative government, and France will return 26 of the 5,000 stolen cultural artifacts that Benin has requested. 90% of Africa's cultural heritage still resides in Europe. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. World leaders are due to meet in Glasgow at the end of the week for the latest UN Climate Change Summit. Activists around the world are calling on governments to make stronger commitments to deal with the catastrophic impacts of greenhouse gas emissions. Ahead of the COP26 meeting, the UN has warned that the world is on track for a catastrophic temperature increase of 2.7 degrees Celsius within the next decade, unless urgent action is taken. And DW correspondent Melina Strauss has been seeking, uh, speaking with the EU's climate policy chief, Franz Timmermans, who will act as the bloc's chief negotiator in Glasgow. Well, if we had not changed our policies, the temperature increase would be beyond 4 degrees. So on the basis of the policies we have now, it's going to be 2.7. That is not Paris territory, so we're not ambitious enough. So uh, at, at COP, we need to try and find a consensus that will take us to a situation where we stay well below 2 degrees. I think we're the most ambitious in the world. Uh, and I think we have, uh, as we're the only ones, have a really clear path to get us from here to climate neutrality in 2050. So I think we can be proud of that. It's now my task to make sure that we actually put this into legislation that is adopted by Parliament and Council. President Putin has ordered Russia's state-owned energy giant to increase gas supplies to Europe after it has filled Russia's storage tanks. Western critics blame Moscow for shortages, which have caused a spike in gas prices. Well, here in Europe, the relationship between Brussels and member state Poland has hit a new low. The European Court of Justice has imposed a daily fine of a million euros on Warsaw. The dispute centres on controversial legal reforms. The Polish government is accused of failing to guarantee an independent judiciary. It could be the start of World War III. That's how Poland's Prime Minister Matthias Morawiecki described the outlook if the EU continues to withhold subsidies. The European Commission has delayed paying COVID-19 relief funds to Warsaw and has long pursued legal cases against Poland in multiple conflicts over EU law. The million euro a day fine imposed by the EU's top court is the latest step in the escalating dispute. You are playing a dangerous game. You are playing with fire 
when waging war with our European colleagues for internal political reasons. Judicial independence is non-negotiable in the European Union. Warsaw will have to learn this. Poland and the EU have been fighting over the independence of Polish courts for years. Warsaw also refuses to recognize the supremacy of EU law. At a recent EU summit, Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki accused the EU of blackmail. Polish lawmakers are voting on plans to build a wall along the country's border to Belarus to keep migrants out. Poland and other EU states accuse Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko of trafficking asylum seekers into the bloc in retaliation for EU sanctions. Israel has defied its U.S. ally by giving the go-ahead for 3,000 new settler homes in the occupied West Bank. It's the first construction to be approved by the new Israeli coalition that some had hoped would move away from the expansion policies of the previous government. The latest construction plans have been strongly criticised by the Biden administration. They dot the West Bank like a dense archipelago. 700,000 Israelis already live in settlements in the Palestinian territories, illegally, according to most of the international community. On Wednesday, 3,000 additional settler homes were approved by the government of Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, according to activists. Now everybody knows that this is not a government of change, but this is a government with the same policy as Netanyahu, to build more in settlements, to deepen the occupation and to take us away from the chances for peace. It's the first new approval by the new Israeli coalition government. It's also the first during the Biden administration, which has made its opposition to further settlements clear. The Palestinian Authority was quick to condemn the latest seizure of land it hopes will one day be the basis of an independent Palestinian state. This is nothing but a declaration of war. It's clear that Israel is intending intentionally to damage the, uh, the will and wish of the Palestinian people and their aspiration. It is the time for the international community to move from words to deeds and to express its views by, by doing and not only by condemning. It's also uh, evident that the Israeli government is implementing the so-called Trump plan and the Biden administration is almost absent. During the Trump presidency, the construction of settlements was ramped up dramatically. The Palestinians now have little reason to believe that Israel will change course. Demonstrators in Ecuador have blocked roads in several provinces on the second day of a national strike. Indigenous groups and labour unions are protesting against the economic policies of the Conservative government. Police made dozens of arrests. A number of people were injured in scuffles with police. Paris Museum has announced it will hand back to cultural artefacts looted from West Africa during the colonial era. The 26 items being exhibited for the final time will soon be returned to the Republic of Benin. They were stolen in 1892 and were among 5,000 works requested by the West African country. French art historians believe about 90% of Africa's cultural heritage is still in Europe. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal, 
or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like listeners to KSKQ in Ashland, Oregon, and KEPW in Eugene, Oregon, did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Sputnik Radio. On his program called Going Underground, Afshin recants he spoke with author and historian Tarika Lee. In this brief excerpt, they discuss Colin Powell and Donald Rumsfeld, global media lies, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, the shifting profits to weapons manufacturers and the heroin industry, and Julian Assange. Sputnik Radio. Joining me now from London is author, historian, and the inspiration for the Rolling Stones, street-fighting man, Tariq Ali, a member of the original anti-war Bertrand Russell Jean-Paul Sartre Tribunal. He, along with Edward Snowden and others, are part of the resurrected tribunal, now named Belmarsh, after Assange's London prison. In NATO nation media, say the BBC, CNN, they're mourning the loss of Colin Powell, uh, he of My Lyle, Salvador, Nicaragua, Panama, Iraq wars. What did you make of the eulogies to the first uh, African-American Secretary of State and uh, other powerful U.S. military-industrial complex positions? Well, I mean, it's uh, what usually happens. Uh, They were similar, though not as effusive as Rumsfeld, because he was just uh, a white guy doing his job. You You know who I'm referring to, the deceased war criminal, Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, and uh, with Golden Powell, it's the same. It's become a slightly more emotional because of his skin color. Uh, but what he did was what they all do, basically serve the empire, tell lies when necessary, wage wars. And in the case of uh, Golden Powell, of course, uh, he has a, a prehistory to Iraq, which is Vietnam. Uh, he was one of the younger officers uh, who covered up the My Lai massacre, which later became a huge scandal uh, in U.S. history. Uh, so that's what he is, and uh, they celebrate their own and give them a good send-off because they support all this stuff and have been for ages now. The media, the global media in the West is a central player in all the wars that have been taking place in the 21st century. The lies about Iraq were told by the New York Times, were peddled uh, uh, in the BBC under pressure from Blair. Director generals of the BBC who didn't toe the line were basically forced out, etc., etc. So these wars have effectively cemented the role of the state media in particular, like the BBC, uh, CNN, uh, and other Western channels. You've written extensively about Afghanistan, a new book uh, out uh, this month. Uh, What did you make of some people uh, celebrating this as a complete change in US policy, that at last the US has seen the light and realized they should get out of these wars that they're defeated in? Well, I think what the U.S. saw was that there was no way forward for them in this war at all, Uh, that they were bogged down in a stalemate. The United States has known this since 2015. 
the Soviet Union, when they went in, realized it very quickly and determined to move out three years into the war. The United States has uh, gone on uh, much, much uh, longer uh, spent trillions, uh, seen the deaths of uh, tens of thousands of uh, Afghan citizens, lost some of their own people, not that many, uh, it has to be said. And they had no alternative left. So politically and ideologically, it's been a huge setback, as they know perfectly well. Will it stop them continuing these adventures? No. It won't. They're an imperial power. They behave uh, in their own interests, as imperial powers are wont to do. And setbacks can be uh, shrugged off, especially in a largely uh, unipolar world. There is no big alternative state there, like the Soviet Union in a different way used to be. So there's no global restraint at all. The European Union and Britain uh, are totally locked in, so are Japan and Australia uh, in Asia. And so the United States can more or less get away with uh, what it wants to do. I mean, there was some European opposition to the Iraq war from Germany and France, but once Iraq was occupied, they came on board, recognized it, supported the occupation, open trade relations, etc. So that's how the world functions. <clears throat> and, you know, we, many of us oppose it, but we have to be aware of what that world is. So, no, there are no permanent restraints on American power uh, at all. But a short-term loss of profit for some of the major weapons uh, and uh, security multinational companies, as Julian Assange made clear, when we say the government spent trillions, actually these trillions are recycled through uh, into big company profits and directors' profits in, uh, in New York, London and, uh, and Paris. The arms merchants will uh, lose, but they'll transfer the big loss for the West is that the control they exercised indirectly over the one success story in Afghanistan, that is now over. And that is what? That when the Taliban were previously in power, Afghanistan's share of the global heroin opium trade was about 24, 25%. Under the 20-year intervention, Allah be praised, it has gone up to nearly 90%. So that is advanced. And that is a lot of money. And that is the money which the middlemen, which included lots of apparatchiks serving in Afghanistan, no doubt senior officers and soldiers from all these armies and all the soldiers who became drug addicts, that is now gone. And so the, I assume the Taliban will be now in total control of this trade, which is very, very profitable. Uh, what is the Belmarsh Tribunal? Well, the Belmarsh Tribunal is, you know, effectively a public relations attempt to try and draw more attention to what's been happening to Assange and why. And what it is going to do is link all the crimes we have witnessed over the last uh, 20 years in different parts of the world. You know, six countries invaded, trillions spent, millions killed. That's what's been going on since the war on terror. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks Exposure of this brought many of these atrocities to the public eye, which is why Julian 
is being punished. It's a vindictive deterrent attempt. It's not going to work. Tarek Ali, thank you. That excerpted interview is by Afshin Ritansi from his program called Going Underground on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the voice of Russia, available online at rt.com. And on YouTube, search for Going Underground. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.